Well, good morning. Today, we are going to light all five of our candles here. We light the last two that we have not lit yet. The last two represent the candle of love and the center candle, which is Christ. And so all four of these candles, the candle of hope, signifying that Christ is the hope of our life, and the candle of peace, that he's the one that reconciles us to God, the candle of joy, that in him we have joy everlasting, and finally, the candle of love, that he's the one that defines love for us. He's the one that displays love for us. He's the one that shows us the love of God and actually shows us that love is not just a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not just a passion, but it's an action, an action of actually serving people and laying your life down for people who will never lay their lives down for you in return. That's love. That's the depth of love. And that center candle represents Christ, who is all of that. He's our hope, our joy, our peace, our love. He's everything. We find it all in Christ. And that's who we are seeking to celebrate, who we're seeking to understand this Advent season. And we've spent the past three Sundays examining the person of Christ. And we're doing the same thing again today, and we're going to follow the same format where I will set the table, and then we'll sing, and I'll talk some more, and we'll sing, and I'll talk some more, and we'll sing, and we'll have kind of a, a time of, of, of introspection, reflection, and worship all rolled into one as we examine the person of Jesus Christ and who this one is that we celebrate during this Advent season. Today, as you, you see in your bulletin, that the focus is on the purpose of Emmanuel. We're going to look at something very interesting, a small part of the, the Advent story, uh, the birth of John the Baptist. We've talked about John and his role of setting the table for Jesus to come. And when we examine this birth, uh, we, we will see a very unique part of the story of Jesus, an experience, actually, that uh, John's parents had, an experience that both uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth, John's parents, went through that actually shows us something about the Messiah, shows us something about the heart of God. We're going to look at a change that occurred. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth spent the better part of their adult life, um, probably somewhere from their mid-teens to their 60s, feeling stigma and shame. They went through this experience where, where people had judged them. People had looked down upon them. And through this experience, they asked God for probably the better part of 40 years to remove this stigma and this shame. And God was silent. He didn't answer their prayer for close to 40 years. But then at the birth of their son, John, or at least the announcement they were going to have a son, God had lifted this shame. He would lifted it off them. And we're going to see that experience with them this morning. And, and I was thinking about it because I've seen this around town. I've seen this in, in uh, advertisements. But uh, there are uh, a lot of people who have uh, what they call blue Christmas celebrations. People don't like the Christmas time. And they, it's sad. They're, maybe they're struggling with the loss of a loved one. Or maybe they're dealing with other family issues. And getting together with people is tough. And sometimes this time of the season reveals the shame and the ugliness of life. Sometimes it's hard for us to be in situations where 
where, we, where it's hard to be around people because of shame and stigma. Sometimes it's hard to even have relationships with people because it requires opening up, and you don't necessarily want to open up and talk about your life or your past or tell me about yourself. No, I don't want to tell you about myself. I don't have a lot of good things to tell you, and I don't really want to be that kind of vulnerable with you. You see, here's the reality of life. When Adam and Eve sinned, it's not only were they found disfavor with God, but they had shame between each other. So as they looked at each other, they knew they were naked, and they were ashamed. They covered themselves up. Shame is a part of the existence that gets in the way of relationships with each other, gets in the way of relationship with God. And one of the great things about the Christmas story and is that we begin to learn that God has come to not only reveal himself and not only deal with justice and righteousness and not only bring salvation to the whole world, but he's also come to lift the shame off of humanity. We're going to see that today. Very unique part of the story. Luke focuses in on this element. And he focuses in on the fact that that, that gets lifted from the people. And we're going to see this today. And I think it's an important message for us. An experiential message for us. As we consider the work of the Messiah. We consider the healing that comes. Not only between us and God. But also the healing between us and each other. And ourselves. And and, and, and the lifting of that shame. So we're going to examine that this morning. And we're going to do that by looking at Luke chapter 1. And we'll do that after we sing. And so what I would like to do is I'd, I'm going to pray here. And then I'm going to ask you to stand. And, and, and we're going to sing. And then we're going to come back and begin to unpack this story together. But, but just bow your head as I pray here. Father, I thank you that we have been able to examine the reality of Jesus and his coming. And Lord, today now as we focus on this very unique part of the story, how you brought John the Baptist into the world, and what you did for this couple, and how you removed the stigma that was on them. Lord, I pray that we would find comfort in that. Lord, I pray that it would impact the way we view the cross and what it does for us I pray that it would, would impact the way we view you as the Lord of the universe and, and how you allow us to experience things sometimes that are difficult and painful. And I pray that it would cause us to view others through the lens of your restorative hands. And God, as we just explore this this morning, I pray that it would bring comfort and encouragement to all of us. I pray that this would be a celebratory time as we consider what type of God you are, a God that heals and restores and even removes the shame that came when sin entered the world. God, I thank you that we have the privilege of celebrating this, and now as we continue in our worship and our study, may it be pleasing in your sight. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we're looking at this very unique story, and, uh, and my heart for us today is that this would cause us to rejoice, and that we would find joy and relief from the reality of, of shame that comes into the world. Luke has a very interesting emphasis here, and you'll see, as you can see in your outline, we're seeing kind of the reality of the shame that's come, the reason that's there. Then we'll see it removed, and, and we're going to get a chance just to see how God works. And, and what's interesting is that as he's setting the motion 
for, for the coming of the Messiah, the first thing that he tackles is this couple's world and the experience that they're going through. And it just shows you the kindness and the mercy of our God. But let's look at the reality of the shame. Just follow along here as I begin in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Notice what it says. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now Luke is setting up a lot of, of details that, that you need to see in order for you to kind of enter into the story. That's what I want you to do here. I want you to kind of enter into the drama of this moment. Um, this is a drama-filled set of verses. It's not just a bunch of facts about their life, but it actually is a very intense section here. Notice the several details that he gives. He says, first of all, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, Herod, you know, the way the Roman Empire worked is they would set rulers over different nations. And, uh, and those rulers were called kings because you had the Caesar who was the great emperor, and then you had different lesser kings that ruled over the different countries that they would conquer. Herod was uh, the ruler over Judea. He was over the uh, Israel and a little bit other, some other areas. And Herod, by this point in his reign, was a little crazy. He, went, he just kind of went nuts towards the end of his... Very paranoid man. And, uh, and so by this point in, in, the, in the life of Herod, he's crazy. And so therefore, there's a lot of political tension in the world, in Judea, in that area. A lot of political tension. And so it's, it's, there's a lot of unrest. So as all the Jews are gathering into Jerusalem for worship and as they go to the temple... They go there knowing it's a very uh, political hotbed. There are riots. There were actually times where people were trying to overthrow Herod. All kinds of stuff going on. Just a lot of political unrest. So pick some of the political unrest of our day and maybe some of the things we've dealt with this year. And, you know, that's kind of the environment that it is. It's a hotbed. So that's the first thing Luke's telling us. He says, now listen, this is the time when Herod was over this. And then he says, now during that time, we have a priest. His name is Zechariah. And he's of the division of Abijah. Now, what does that mean? Well, just some facts about this. David, King David, had taken all the priests and divided them into 24 divisions. One of them was the division of Abijah. Okay, so we know that Zechariah is part of this particular group. His wife is also of the priestly line. She's of Aaron. She's of that tribe. Now, why is that important? It's going to be important in the storyline in a minute. But let me just say this. In order to be a priest... Or, or I should say this way, when you were a priest, you were unique and distinct from everyone else in Israel. You didn't own land, so no priest could own any land. No priest had any big savings account. They didn't have money. They lived off the tithes and offerings of the people. They were set apart to serve God. So if you were a priest, you were set apart. Now, here we have a really priestly family because you have both husband and wife of the priestly line. So on the one hand, they are to be set apart. They are to, to carry this, this role to serve the Lord. That's what that means. But, and we learn a few other things. Now, we need to know all this in order for the punch to hit us. Okay, so Luke's setting the table for us. Okay, you got Herod. It's a crazy time. You have this priest who's of this, of this division. You have a wife. His wife's also of the priestly line. A couple things you also need to know. They were both righteous before God. They were both righteous before God. 
We know one thing in the Bible. How, do you, how are you righteous before God? By faith, right? What does it mean? They trusted God. They trusted God for life. They trusted God for salvation. They trusted God for everything. You need to know that. Important in the story. Okay, so we're setting up for the punch here. So they trusted God, and not only were they righteous, not only had God said, I accept you, man, your faith is enough. Notice what else? They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, that's a quite an extreme statement, right? I mean, I don't know if you could say that about me. You know, like, you, you followed everything the Bible said, right? But that's what he's saying. These two were completely devoted to God. Their first thought on every decision is, what would God want? What would God want? Something comes their way, what would God want? They would never stop and think, what, this is what's best for us, or I need me time, or, you know, I need my time, I need my space. They get, what do you want, God? What do you want, God? Right? So that's what they're saying about them. Every facet of their life was, was centered on obeying God. Okay, so now, days of political unrest, we got this couple. They are like the priestly couple. They walked by faith. They followed God. But then notice what it says. But they had no child. There's the punch. We need all that set up in order to understand that punch there. Why? One of the realities in that day, and this is not a biblical thing, so, so I just want you to know, this is not a biblical reality for these people, but, but they thought it was. They thought that if you were married and you didn't have a baby, that you were in sin, that God was judging you. And they looked down upon families who did not have children. So here is this couple who's supposed to be set apart by God to serve God. Here's this couple that's supposed to be, you know, I mean, they're of the priestly line, but yet the world sees this priest and his wife, and they have no children. As we're going to see, I mean, you can just drop down and look at verse 25. I mean, Elizabeth, when she finally gets pregnant, is like, wow, the shame has been lifted. The reality is that they, they called a woman horrible things. If she didn't have a baby, if she could not conceive, she was actually called a murderer because she was killing the seed that was given to her. Horrible stuff. Shame and reproach was brought upon a woman if she could not conceive. And the family was considered to be not serving God. Not serving God. You see why Luke's telling us all this about them. Right? If you were kind of in the first century reading this and you just said, hey, there was this guy, Zachariah, he was a priest and, and, uh, and they were old and they didn't have any children and that's all they said, your emotional thought would be, well, what's wrong with them? God was judging them. And so Luke goes all the way and said, no, they were righteous. They followed the law. They were obedient. But they didn't have a baby. Okay? So now I just want to say on a side note, nowhere in the Bible does it say, that if you can't have a baby, you're in sin. Where did they get that from? Well, I'm going to give you a little freebie theology lesson here. Okay, It's an important theology lesson, but I'm going to give it to you here. There's a thing in theology, and I'll give you the term. The term is this. It's called over-realizing something. 
That's the term, over-realizing. You might hear theologians talk about this. They have an over-realized theology of such and such. What does over-realizing mean? Over-realizing means that your logic has taken over the Bible. Your logic has taken it over. So how would that look? Well, we know throughout the Proverbs, we know throughout the Psalms, children are a blessing from the Lord, right? It clearly states that. Children are a blessing. Now, we're supposed to just accept that as just a simple reality. Somebody has a child, it's a blessing. You don't go, oh, you got children, I'm sorry, right? No, it's a great thing. Children are great. That's all the Bible's saying. Now, when your logic takes over, here's what you do with that statement. Here's where, where all of a sudden, if logic kicks in, you go, children are a blessing. A blessing's a good thing. A blessing means God likes you. If God's going to give you a blessing, he must like you. Oh, wait a minute. If God's going to withhold a blessing, what's going to happen? He must not like you. He must be mad at you. You must have done something wrong. If you don't have children, you're a sinner. Get it? Give you the line. Good logic makes poor theology. Good logic makes wretched theology. Because that is not what the Bible's saying. Not at all what the Bible's saying. She just couldn't get pregnant, period. Has nothing to do with the blessing of God. Now, the reason why I'm making a big point of this is that regardless of the fact that that, that, that that pressure that was put upon them isn't true, and it isn't a result of their sin, it doesn't change the reality that that's what they were experiencing. You got it? That's just what they were going through. They were experiencing the cultural shame. And we do this to people sometimes in our culture. There are things that make us roll our eyes at people, right? There are things people do, and we go, oh, can't believe they did that. Well, right? I mean, we're really good at that. So, so even though they did that with that, and we probably wouldn't do that today, we've got our things we overrealize, and we've got all kinds of things that make us shun people or roll our eyes or turn the other direction. So, so we're, we're not free of that sin. It happens. But, but this was their scenario. This is what they were experiencing, the pain of that. And this is quite a deal for this couple. Could you imagine, though, consider for them for a moment the fact that they are priests and their job is to serve God. And every time they walk in to do their priestly duty, people are saying, why are you doing this? You're in sin. You're under the judgment of God. And they're advanced in years, meaning this, they're beyond childbearing years. Now consider, too, that it's a possibility that Elizabeth got married somewhere around the age of 14, and 15, 14 or 15 years old. Elizabeth, I mean, uh, Zechariah, probably, you know, somewhere 17, 18 years of age. So they're going, I'm not going to do the math, but they're going to go from teenagers to somewhere in their 50s or 60s. So I'm just saying 40 years, okay? Somewhere in that time frame, 40 years of stigma, 40 years of shame, 40 years of asking God, and we're going to see they have been praying that God would remove this stigma. They have been praying that God would take this pain away and God has been silent for 40 years. God hasn't answered that prayer for 40. 40 years he has to walk into the temple. 40 years he has to do the work. He has to pray with people. He has to offer sacrifice. He's going to do stuff as someone consecrated to God and for 40 years he deals with the fact that everybody thinks this guy is in sin. That he's under the judgment of God. And yet, though, the amazing thing is they never turned on God. 
when I read that they were righteous before God, I read the fact that even though God was silent for 40 years, God didn't answer the prayer for 40 years, God left them in the state of stigma and embarrassment and shame for 40 years, they still said, I'm following you. That, to me, is, is an incredible miracle. You know, these guys are like heroes in my eyes, that they could go through that for 40 years and still not turn on God. Still not turn on God. You know, we pray for like a year for something and we freak out. Why didn't God answer? You know, I mean, could you imagine for 40 years everybody thinking you're under the judgment of God? And you're supposed to be a priest? That's amazing, man. You, I can't wait to meet them. They're incredible. Okay, so there's the reality of the shame. Now let's look at the reason for the shame. What we're going to learn now, as we kind of move on here, is that God actually is doing something in the world. He's actually doing something, and there's a reason why she hasn't gotten pregnant. And that God is actually involved. That God's not distant, he's actually involved. So notice what happens now, verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Okay, so now... There's 24 divisions. Each priest, each division was called on, up, up on duty two times a year. And, uh, and when it was their turn to call, they would have to go to the temple and do all the temple work, whatever was going on. So whenever your division was called, whatever time of the year it was, whatever celebration, you were responsible. Now typically, because there were so many priests, not every priest got the honor of doing the inside temple stuff. So a lot of the priests had to do the outside temple stuff, which is like going over to the shepherds and getting the animals for sacrifices and getting things ready and talking to people and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Most of, that was most of it. It was a lot of uh, busy work, drudge work, hard kind of labor, most of the priests would. And so what, but what they did here in this case, though, is when it was time, though, they would line up the priests and they would say, okay, we've got outside work, outside the temple work, and we have inside the temple work. So in order to find out who's going to do the inside the temple work, they would cast lots. They would take these dice, and they would roll the dice in front of the priests. And they'd say, okay, we now need to have somebody who's going to burn the incense. And so they would roll the dice in front of the priests, and when a certain combination of dice would come up, they would say, okay, that's who God has chosen to go do that job. So all the priests were used to it. Kind of, I'm, I'm picturing like a military setup where they're all lined up, and the high priest is rolling dice in front of their feet, you know, and, and, and so they're, they're sitting there rolling it. And it's about time to um, pick the one who's going to burn the incense. And that particular one came to Zechariah. Now, the incense was burned two times a day, signifying prayers going to God. And two times a day, the nation would gather around the temple, and they would all go out in this courtyard area, and they would all pray while a priest would go inside and then burn incense on the temple. i got a picture of the... Uh, of what it looks like. That's, that's what the altar looked like. So what happened is, Zechariah was called upon to go inside the temple and to light this thing. And while he's lighting it, the smoke would rise up and then all the people would pray. Two times a day, every day, that's what happens. Zechariah gets the call to go in and light this incense. That's a big deal for him. 
It's a huge deal for him uh, because, uh, you know, probably has never been in the temple before. That's going to be my guess. I mean, it's not specific, specifically stated, but, but usually a priest would only go in once in his whole lifetime just because of the amount of priests they had. So now let's look at what happens. Look at verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Okay, now every priest knows that when you go into the temple to do something, God is going to expose your heart. And in several places in the law, it says that if he comes in with sin in his heart, God's going to kill him right there. Okay, so it's like, you know, not probably the most exciting thing to get called to. I mean, it's probably a huge honor at the same token, the most terrifying honor. If I don't go in consecrated, I will die. So you got Zechariah. He's, he's trusting God, but he has no child. He's praying regularly, as we'll see in a minute, that God would remove this stigma from him. He goes into the temple, lights the altar, and there's an angel standing at the right side. Do not think precious moments, okay? <laughs> Don't think cuddly little person with wings or like, you know, some, you know, beautiful girl standing there going, hi, you know, like that kind of thing, okay? <laughs> Don't think that, okay? There's something whenever angels appear that they say. What are the first words out of an angel's mouth when they appear? Do not be afraid. Why? They're scary. Not like ah, evil scary, like Halloween. But, but they're warriors. We read in Revelation, they show up with swords that are on fire. They carry out the battles for God. They war with demons. When an angel shows up, and if you're a priest and you go in a temple and an angel's there, you go, uh-oh, I'm dead. It's over for me. Fear falls upon him. Don't let those words pass you by. Fear falls upon him. If you've ever had fear fall upon you, you know what it means. It means this. You can't even stand. You are in the presence of somebody that you know is going to kill you. He feels it. He feels the terror of this moment. And so you're kind of hoping when an angel shows up, those words come out, do not be afraid, right? That's like what you want to hear. Little side note, you see an angel and you don't hear those words. Well, I will give you a good funeral, right? <laughs> it will be Christ-centered. We'll share Christ at your funeral, right? You, you should be afraid. Okay, look at verse 13. But the angel said to him, Phew, do not be afraid, Zachary. Now listen to this, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You catch the symbolism of this moment? He's been praying for this, his wife has been praying for this. God is going to announce the news, You're going to select him to offer the, the symbol of prayer. It's clear this man's a man of prayer. He's praying, he comes in. He gets to light this thing. It's an incredible moment. I mean, the picture of this is so beautiful. And the angel says, don't, no, I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to give you a word from God. 
And that word from God is this. Your prayers have been heard. Now, for a moment, I want you to consider something. I don't want you just to consider the fact that that this has been going on in their life for 40 years. I want you to consider the fact that for 400 years, God hasn't spoken. God has been silent not just in their life. God has been silent in all of Israel. There hasn't been a prophet that has come. There hasn't been a word from God. 400 years of silence. And the first time that God speaks is to a man and says, I want you to know for the past 40 years, we've heard. And now it's time to answer that prayer. Now it is time to answer that prayer. Don't be afraid. Here's what's going to happen. Your wife is going to get pregnant. And you are going to have a son. You see, here's the thing. You're a part of the plan of God. You're a part of the plan of God. You're a part of what God is doing. You know, God, from the beginning of time, has been working within time to carry out a purpose. And God is a God who's, Heather and I were talking about this last night, he's obsessed with time. God lives outside of time. He lives in eternity. But he created time and he uses time. And he has everything ordained to occur at a certain time. And he's fixed times. He's fixed everything. He's fixed the world to work in an an arena of time. And God is obsessed with time in a good way because he's appointed things to happen at certain times. And therefore, it was God's will that Elizabeth get pregnant, but it wasn't God's will that she get pregnant at 16. It was God's will that she was going to get pregnant somewhere around 55 or 60. That was God's will. That was God's plan. Because you see, God is not just working in the moment. His goal isn't just to work within my moment. His goal is to work within the whole span of history. And my time and your time is all part of God's bigger use of time. And I will tell you this. One thing I have learned from studying the Bible for many years is that God answers our prayers His way in His time for His purposes. I've learned that. That God answers our prayers. He does. But He answers them His way in His time for His purposes. That's what He does. And the more I align my life to His purposes, the better my prayer life becomes. Because now I'm beginning to pray according to His purposes and not just mine. But God does answer prayers. But he does it in his time. And in this case, this is what he was doing here. And what he's trying to tell him is he's trying to say, listen, yeah, you haven't had a baby, but this hasn't been about because of sin. This has been because of a plan. See, God not only wanted to have you have a baby, this is a very specific baby. I want you to look at He says, I want you to realize you're going to have a son, which would be great news for Zechariah, right? Because the, the, you know, the, the view of having a son, the carry on the lineage. But not only that, I'm telling you the name of your son. God's hearing your prayer, and he's answering your prayer, and he's answering it with a mission. And now notice the way he describes the son. Okay? Because this wasn't just a birth announcement. This was a revelation of God's plan. That's what you have going on here. So notice verse 14. He's starting to explain the son here, and he says, And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he'll be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or a strong drink, And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. 
See, now here's what's going to happen. You're, you're going to go from shame. You've walked through life with shame, and I'm going to restore you, man. I'm going to give you joy and gladness. And not only that, there's going to be huge celebrations when he's born. Why? Because this guy is going to be special. He's going to be great. God has a plan for you. He's going to give you this son who's going to be so incredible, and he's going to be a Nazarite. Why do I say that? Because we're talking about not drinking and all that stuff. You must not drink wine or strong drink. In the, in the Old Testament, there's a thing called a Nazarite vow. If you, somebody really wanted to be like really consecrated, they would basically go off and live almost, almost like a monastic lifestyle. They wouldn't cut their hair. They wouldn't take any of the pleasures of life. They just live fully devoted to God. And he's saying, that's what's going to happen. He's going to be fully devoted to God. And instead of the Spirit of God coming upon him after his birth to anoint him like prophets happened to many prophets or kings where a pro someone would lay hands and they would get the Spirit to be set apart for a purpose, he'll be set apart the moment he's conceived. God's Spirit will be rested upon him. This guy is going to be a special man. See, here's what's happening. For the first time in 400 years, God is sending a prophet. This isn't just, you're not just having a baby you, you, yeah, you've been barren because now is the time to send the prophet. And you were the one chosen to carry this prophet. That's what he's saying. It's a special moment. It's a very special moment. Now let's look what else he says about him. Look at verse 16. And he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to their children, the disobedience to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's quoting from Malachi chapter 4. He's quoting the last words of the last prophet. It's an interesting thing. The last words of the last prophet. The last prophet to, spoke, to speak says, Elijah's coming. And he's going to come before God brings the great day of the Lord. And when he comes, he's going to restore Israel. And fathers are going to begin to love their children. And children are going to begin to love their parents, their fathers. The division within the homes are going to be restored because, you see, sin takes over. And what happens? All the relationships break down. And the greatest way you see the breakdown of relationships is in a home, Right? So he's saying, okay, so the fathers get to the point where they get annoyed with their kids, and kids get to the point where they get annoyed with their fathers, and they start turning against each other. They start fighting each other. And he says, now when this guy comes, he's actually going to bring a message of healing to the homes of Israel. This is why there's going to be great rejoicing in the land. Because restoration is coming. So that's what Malachi says, the last prophet to speak. And then the first words of the angel to Zechariah, is, guess what? Remember what the last prophet said? This one of Elijah's coming? Your wife's going to give birth to him. And you're going to be his daddy. This is happening. This is happening. He is going to bring restoration to the nation. Why? Because the Messiah is coming. That's what's happening. The preparation is coming so the Messiah can come and bring all that the Messiah is going to bring. He's like, man, you, you know, God's heard your prayers. He's, it just wasn't time yet. Now picture being Zechariah for a moment. 
I don't know how old he is. In my brain, I'm just seeing 63 years old, okay? That's what I see. So I'm picturing 63-year-old guy in the temple, probably has felt the weight of the stigma of the shame of not having a child. So I'm picturing this guy kind of walking in, not the boldness and the you know, arrogance of youth, but the brokenness that life brings as you get older. He's lighting the temple. There's an angel. <gasps> oh, no. And then the angel says, oh, don't freak. Here's what's happening. Remember Malachi, which he would know Malachi. Well, actually, that's going to be fulfilled through you. You're going to have this baby. How would you respond? What would you think at that moment if that were you? I mean, like, you know, I can't imagine hearing that news. You know, I mean, you, you can't imagine, you know, being of that age and going, yeah, you know. I don't know, what, you know, how would you respond? Well, notice how Zachariah responded. I don't, I don't necessarily judge Zachariah for this response, but, but he doesn't, he's not embracing this moment, right? Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. Notice he doesn't say his wife is old. He's very gentlemanly. And she's advanced. (laughs) (laughs) She's not old, just advanced. Right? (laughs) Like a fine wine. She's just aging beautifully. Okay. How do I know this? I'm old. And she de- if she couldn't conceive when she was 20, how, how is she going to do it now? So he's not saying no. What he's saying is, I need a sign. I need to know this is true. I, I cannot walk out of this room and tell people, hey, guess what? Beth's going to get pregnant. Right? I can't do that. I need some form of a sign. Jews always ask for signs. We, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. Notice verse 19. And the angel answered him. Now, by the way, I really picture this in thunderous voice. I don't know if you do, but I picture this in very thunderous voice. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. That's how I picture that answer. Okay? Like, you know, you need more of a sign than this? Come on. You're in the temple and I'm an angel and I didn't kill you. Okay? I think we got enough signs going here, buddy. Okay? I don't know. That's my, how I view it. Okay? Not only that, you think I'm a liar? Like, I, like, would I come down and mess with you? Anyway, these are all the things that go through my brain when I read his answer. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Okay, you want a sign? Here's your sign. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. There's the key to that. In their time. See, God has a timetable. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. How dare you impugn my character? You don't believe me? Okay, here's the deal. You won't be able to speak. I'm going to make you mute. Which to me is like the irony of ironies, by the way. The first time God has spoken in 400 years, and the guy who hears it can't talk, right? Like, talk about weird, right? God, he could come out and go, right? He can't say what God said. First time he has spoken, and the guy who hears it can't speak. What a sign. 
But here's what the sign is. It's really the sign of the doubter. I will silence your tongue. I'm going to silence your tongue. Now here's the point. God had a plan, and he was going to fulfill his plan in his time. And God's timetable wins all the time. It doesn't really matter how you feel about it. His timetable wins. It's just what's going to happen. Now notice, let's read on in the story. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he, had came, when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Okay, so the people are waiting. Now notice, it's taken a long time for him to get out, which you can only imagine they're thinking, he just got killed. I mean, he's under the judgment of God already. He doesn't have a child. He hasn't come out. This isn't good. You get him. No. You get him. No. I don't want to get him. You get him. <laughs> you can just imagine what's going on out there, thinking he's dead. Then he comes out. He can't speak. They realize something big has happened. Very big. A couple things here to think about before we sing, because we're going to have a moment just to reflect. But I want to give you a couple of things that I had been thinking about. The shame that came upon them wasn't really their fault. It wasn't. It wasn't something that they did. It was the shame that came because of a judgmental spirit. It came because of a very judgmental spirit upon the people. But nonetheless, it was a very real shame. But, but then as this thing begins to unfold, we begin to learn something. And, and this angel begins to show us some things about God. And the angel shows us that God has a plan and that he works his plan. God has a plan and he works his plan. And he shows us that God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And he shows us that God possesses the power to carry out what he's doing, right? He has a plan. He knows what he's doing. He has the power to carry it out. So relax. Relax. The reality of the situation is is that God is at work. And in this work, he's not only using us and allowing this couple to experience these things, He's also going to bring blessing and remove the shame. He's also going to show them that there was a reason why they weren't pregnant. And he's also going to show them that that they had a very unique part in the plan of God, but that plan is being carried out at specific times and points in time. That's our God. That's who, who our God is. And he's an incredible God because all of this is being driven by his kindness and his mercy. God doesn't withhold these things from them because he hates them or he's trying to punish them. He's trying to make them go through these horrible experiences because they've done something wrong. He's trying to show them that he's involved with displaying grace and mercy to the whole world. And we're being used in that. And sometimes in that process, there's suffering along the way. And sometimes in that process, there's pain along the way. But that pain is intended to be used by God to carry out his plan of mercy his plan of kindness to the world. That's just something we should stop and think about. And so I want us to do that now. Let's just consider that. Think about this element of the story before we bring it to a close here. I want you just to take a moment and reflect. So but let's just have a moment of reflection and really think about this plan and what's being said here. So let's look now at how the shame was removed from them. Very simple, the end of the story here. And when his time of service was ended, 
He went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away reproach, my reproach among people. So that five months was typical. When a woman was pregnant, they would just kind of stay off alone. And in that time frame, she kept praising God. You know what? The Lord heard my prayers and he took my reproach away. Why would Luke record that statement? Of all the things that could be said about this story, why focus on that statement? That the Lord looked upon me to take my reproach among my people. Because I believe when you look at the very first entrance of sin in the world, we see it not only creating rebellion towards God, but we see it causing shame towards others. And God is a God that removes that shame. He removes that shame. And that's what she's saying. I experienced this from God. I experienced God doing this. That God lowers himself in such a way that he cares for me and he lifts me up. And she's just enthralled by the fact that this is who God is. That he's that kind of a God. Now what do we do with this? I, I think that there are two kind of applications to this story. One is a personal application and the second is a more public application. But let's just focus on these two for a moment. As far as the, the, the personal application, we have this reality that Emmanuel has come to forgive our sins. Emmanuel has come to give us a right standing with God. Emmanuel has come to remove the shame. He's come to, to absolutely deal with all of that. Even though Elizabeth's shame wasn't caused by something that she had done, it was caused by the judgmental attitudes of those around her, she still experienced it. And God still lifted it off her. And she was still able to go out and walking away as a restored person. But you know, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the reality that, that God is a restorative God. He, he doesn't condemn. and He condemns Christ in our place so that we can find full restoration. I think that is incredible to think about. But I started thinking about the fact that this, this story is even greater than just that one experience of the removal of shame, which is so important. All of us come into this room with things that we're embarrassed by. All of us come in this room with things that if someone found out about us, it would absolutely, we'd hate that. Back in the 1970s, they used to have, they, I'm sure they still make these little chick tracks. I don't even know when I, when I say chick track, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, yes. Nobody young raised their hand, that's okay. Chick, tr well, not that you guys are old, but you know, anyways. <laughs> not Zachariah kind of old, but no, I'm joking. Um, chick tracks are these tracks. They're pretty abusive tracks. I don't like them. Just so you know, just up front, please don't give them to me. I don't like them. Uh, because they, they tend to use guilt and manipulation to get people. And they used to have one called This, this Was Your Life. And they said, everybody's going to go to heaven. And when they go to heaven, there's going to be a giant screen up in heaven. And everyone's going to see everything you ever thought and felt and, and every inner desire. And it will be publicized before the whole world. So Repent. That was the track. But that's not God. That's not God. God restores. He punishes Christ in our place. And what he takes is not only the guilt, but he takes the shame. He takes it all. 
And he says, you can be a new creation. But here's another reality of the story in terms of a personal application. Besides that reality, there's also the reality of patience, I see, the personal application, of recognizing that God answers his, our prayers in his time, his way, for his purposes. And the more I align myself to the purposes of God, the better my prayer life becomes. And sometimes in life we bring a lot of pressure on ourselves and a lot of angst because God isn't working off of our timetable, but God has a timetable. And our timetable will never beat his timetable. Guaranteed. You've never won that arm wrestling match with God. You never will. You're the one freaking out. He's not. <laughs> He's not. He's not up in heaven going, Jesus, when are you going to come back? When are you going to come back? This is stressing me out. Right? He's not doing that. That's not God. And so there's an element of rest that I see in Zechariah 11, an element of, of, of a sense of not only did God restore them and restore their presence among the people because that's what he does, but there's an element of faith and trust. Even when God's answering his prayer, Zechariah is doubting. I came across this quote this week by Tim Keller. I loved it. He says, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Isn't that a great thought? You would not be in heaven saying, I'm lacking right now. Or you'd not be on earth right now. If you knew everything that God knows, you would not be discontent at all at this given moment. If you knew all that God knew. That's what he's saying. It's a powerful thought. That's just a, a personal application I learned from this. Not only does God restore the, them but then God also works in a timetable. So now this leads me to the public application. And the public application is this. I don't want to do to people what people did to Elizabeth and Zechariah. I don't want to judge people and define them by their sin. I want to define them by the cross. And I also don't want to panic if somebody isn't measuring up at the timetable that I've laid out for them that I begin to start drawing the final chapter of their life. I don't want to do that, right? I always pick on Anzevic. He used to be over here. He's back over there. Mike, I'm picking on you still. I don't want to say, hey, Mike is, is not being a disciple at the pace that he should be a disciple. Therefore, there must be some sin in Mike's life that I don't know about because Mike isn't measuring up at my level. I don't want to do that. God's working in Mike's life at his time and in his way. And I can rest that the same spirit that is at work in my life is at work in Mike's life. The same spirit that's at work in my life is at work in my family's life. The same spirit that, that, that is in me is everywhere. And the same Jesus that rules my life rules the planet. I can relax and trust God. And I don't have to insert my timetable onto humanity. I can actually not define you by your sin, but by the cross. And isn't that a great comforting thing? You're forgiven. You're restored. That doesn't mean I'm disengaging from you. It doesn't mean I'm not going to love you. It just means that I'm not going to have to panic if things aren't progressing at the pace at which I think they should progress. God answers our prayers in his time, his way, for his purposes. Sometimes the prodigal son has to get to the hog pen before he comes back home. Right?
Sometimes that happens. But God answers our prayers in his time. That's really, what I would say, the, the, the relaxing element of, the, of this Christmas story. God knows what he's doing. So I can define you by the cross, not by your sin. And I can relax and be faithful to love you and serve you and trust God for the outcome. That's a joyful thing. Let's just praise God for that together. Would you just join me in prayer? And then we're going to sing one last song after that. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. This is such a rich account of this couple that just dealt with so many things, social stigmas, internal shame. They trusted you, but their faith also faltered. And even when Zechariah faltered, God, you didn't kill him there. Even when he insulted Gabriel, the one who intercedes for Israel, the one who communicates, this powerful angel, the one who's involved with so many incredible times in the history of Israel, he insulted him, challenged him. Yet you were patient and you were loving. All you did was silence his tongue. You still used him for your purposes. God, I pray that we would first of all know that whatever shame we carry, whatever social stigmas we carry, those are irrelevant. You can lift that off of us. You can restore us. You're not going to embarrass us on the day of judgment. You're going to restore us. We will stand before your presence blameless and with great joy. And Lord, we need to just trust you that you're in control. God, may we surrender your timetable. And Lord, as we treat others then, may we be surrendered to your timetable and just be faithful to love them and not to find people by their sin, but by the cross that restores and has the power to restore everyone. These are the purposes for which you've come into the world and the calling for which you've called us to live. And God, may we just rejoice in that and just, just leave here today filled with joy because of what you've done for us and in us. In Christ's name, amen.